the peace deals, whatever it is, ceasefires, accords, agreements in the Middle East always exist on a razor's edge. Picture a pot on the stove. Under the lid that sort of contains everything is a slow boil of centuries and millennia old ethnic conflict, religiously inspired conflict, more recently fueled by political conflict, and it's all at this slow boil. And the question is always, what's going to happen to raise the temperature just enough to blow the lid off and then everything happens again? Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world in the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. And today we're going to do just that, which is look at today's world and the headlines, which is something that we don't do too often on the podcast. But today we're going to talk about what's really happening in Israel. Before we get into that, we want to let you know about an opportunity that you can support Jewish communities that you may never have heard of living in some of the most remote parts of the world. They have immediate physical needs that you can help relieve. There's more details about this on our website, a Jew in a Gentile discuss.org. And as a thank you for supporting them, we will send you some coffee from Ethiopia, which is where we have served for over 20 years. And if you want to have a chance to get a bag of that coffee for free, stay tuned to the end of this podcast. So back to the topic, what's really happening in Israel? Let's discuss. So Ezra, lots of our listeners, I'm sure, have been listening to the news over the past month or so. Just as a note, we're recording this on June 17th. But they probably heard about rocket fire happening in Israel and just chaos ensuing, not really knowing what's going on. I know for myself, especially before I even worked at Jewish Voice, when Israel in the Middle East was in the news, I just didn't understand it at all. And so I just distanced myself even more because it just seemed too complicated and complex. But again, a lot has happened over the past month, and we want to bring a little bit of clarity to that and even talk about some of the latest news that is happening as we're speaking. So let's start with that. I almost want to say the conflict began a month ago, but really the conflict began, you know, in the beginning of biblical times. But let's just talk about the past month. What happened and who is who is involved in the conflict? Yeah. And Carly, just in response to what you just said, this conflict is nothing new. Okay. And the way it happened, the fact that There was animosity between Israel, the state of Israel, and the Palestinian territories and specific radical groups within the Palestinian territories is nothing new, okay? And the fact that this involved rockets being launched from Palestinian territories, namely Gaza, into Israel, the main part of Israel, also nothing new. The fact that the UN condemned Israel for being an apartheid state and for attacking innocent civilians in Gaza and elsewhere, nothing new. The fact that other Middle Eastern nations stood up and said, we will stand with the Palestinian people in attacking Israel if they want our help. Nothing new. And the fact that the amount of widespread anti-Semitic sentiment on social media in a lot of the mainstream news from other world leaders, as well as several nations, several leaders, I'm thinking of the, the leadership in, believe it or not, the country of Germany and other key countries standing up and saying, no, we're standing with Israel in this on the other side of the fence. Also nothing new. So What's different here is the intensity, 
the range of the rockets, the amount of the rockets being sent, the intensity of the conflict in the main part of Israel, this time not just between Israelis and Palestinians, but actually between Israelis, uh, Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis, both groups of which are full passport-carrying, tax-paying Israeli citizens, but almost a, if you will, an ethnic or a racial clash in Israel between Jewish and Arab Israelis, that is is a little bit new. And the, the intensity and the violence associated with that was new. And the, the amount of the anti-Semitic rhetoric happening around the world and the intensity of that through social media seems to be increased in its intensity. It's interesting, Ezra, you know, your wife, who's actually from Israel, she and I were talking about this and she was saying that, you know, living in Israel, rocket fire and all of that is kind of normal, which is unfortunate. Um, but in this past month, she was saying, you know, even when I talk to my friends and family in Israel, it's different. It's not just like, oh, this is normal. It's like, no, I need to be more careful than, you know, just kind of everyday rocket fire, I guess. Sure. And, you know, part of that, Carly, is Israel is really about the size of New Jersey. In case our listening audience hasn't kind of done a side by side on a map, which you wouldn't necessarily have a reason to Israel, right? Israel occupies so much of the news and the conflict between Israel and other Arab countries in the Middle East and Israel and the Palestinians occupies so much of the bandwidth in the headlines and the evening news forever, it seems, that we think of Israel as maybe this big place, but it's actually not. It's a, it's a land strip the size of New Jersey that at its narrowest between the Mediterranean Sea and the section of Israel called the West Bank, which is really, if you will, the Palestinian-controlled territories, is as thin as eight miles across, or in other words, the width of the island of Manhattan. That's the piece of land we're talking about. And so what is new and what's feeling more intense and really scarier to many of my wife's friends and, and her family who live in Israel, maybe less than 100 miles from the Gaza Strip as the crow flies, is that the missiles being sent out of Gaza and other Palestinian territories at times into the main part of Israel are longer range and they're more targeted. So rather than them just falling in, maybe you've heard the name Sederot. I'm saying it with a, the, the way I know to say it in Hebrew is Sederot, but the way you hear it on the news is Sederot, uh, same place right on the other side of the border of Gaza, which is always a town that suffers some of the worst damage whenever rockets are sent. It's not just Sederot anymore. It's not just the Negev Desert. It's not just the south suburbs of Tel Aviv like Ashkelon. There's rockets now that it's understood from military intelligence and from Palestinian Authority bragging can make it to Jerusalem. So what that means is when these rockets start flying, not just sections of the country of the state of Israel are on alert, the entire nation effectively is on high alert. And that that presents a new level of, of really scariness and intensity for uh, the millions of Israeli citizens, Jewish and Arab alike, who are hoping and praying that when the siren goes off and they know they have 30 to 90 seconds to make it to the bomb shelter in their neighborhood, that it doesn't come hitting their neighborhood or really anywhere in Israel, but especially their own loved ones. So that's, that's really a key here is that these bombs, which I'll mention, are largely financed by Iran. I'm sorry to say, we're not vilifying the, the, the Persian or the Iranian people here. That's not our purpose on this podcast, to vilify anyone, but to say the current administration of Iran and the radical Islamic groups in that nation are funding a lot of these missiles being assembled in Gaza. So as technology increases, the deadliness of these of these rockets increases as well. 
Ezra, you know, the conflict, you could probably sum it up by saying is a, a religious conflict. Um, but some of the conflict that occurred in the last month involves the Temple Mount or the, the Dome of the Rock, right? Correct. And that's really, you know, we're talking about the missiles, but how did the missiles start flying? Again, this isn't the first time, it isn't the second time, it isn't even the 10th time. Since Gaza was established as, as kind of this territory completely given over to the control of the Palestinian Authority in 2005, there's been many, many occasions when the ceasefire, which always exists on a razor's edge, is broken and missiles begin flying, rockets begin flying. But how did they start this time? And like you said, interestingly enough, right, God calls Jerusalem the apple of his eye in the scriptures. He who touches Jerusalem and the people living there sticks their finger in the apple of his eye. That's a story for another day. Listen to our our podcast on the land of Israel and the state of Israel if you want more details on that. But this particular conflict began in the city of Jerusalem and more specifically on the Temple Mount, which is the historic site of the first and second Jewish temples and the holiest place in Judaism worldwide called the the Wailing Wall or the Kotel, the Western Wall. What do we mean by that? It's the closest place that a Jewish person can get to where the Temple and the Holy of Holies once stood before it was destroyed in 70 AD under the Roman Empire. Well, why is it the closest that a Jewish person can get? Why can't they just go right up on the Temple Mount and stand next to the Holy of Holies? Because for the last several decades, the Temple Mount itself, that higher area, if you look at a picture of Jerusalem with that golden dome, which is known as the Dome of the Rock, is a couple things. It's the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which outside of Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia is the third holiest site in all of Islam. And then the shrine commemorating where Muhammad the prophet ascended to heaven, namely the Dome of the Rock, which parentheses, by the way, is the same piece of rock that we understand the Jewish Holy of Holies in the in the temple was on so that was that was named by muhammad in islam as the place where he'd had this dramatic encounter with allah of course it's the same location the exact same little outcrop of rock in the middle of the temple mount as where the holy of holies in the temple once stood but under that golden dome which has only been golden for less than a hundred years it used to be kind of this this uh darker grayish black iron before it was uh covered over and improved in case you're ever on Jeopardy and need to know that, is is this shrine to this uh, experience that Muhammad said he had with Allah. And so there it stands. And because it's one, under the control of religious Islamic leaders, and two, because the Temple Mount surface as part of a peace agreement brokered several decades ago, is actually administrated, believe it or not, by the country of Jordan. So if you're at the if you're at the Wailing Wall, that's absolutely Jewish-controlled Jerusalem. Jewish people can freely go there. But if you take, if you look at the pictures, that kind of wooden ramp, it almost looks like a roller coaster waiting ramp at Six Flags, and you get up onto the Temple Mount itself, you've just crossed over. It's still sovereign Israeli territory. Israel maintains sovereign control, but administration and a lot of the security, to some degree, on the Temple Mount surface itself is under the control of a group from the country of Jordan that sort of keeps the peace in that area. And then also, of course, Israeli police are responsible to protect everyone, Jewish, Arab, Christian, whatever your religion is, in the Temple Mount area, both down at the Wailing Wall and up on the Temple Mount itself. So the Israeli police are all over this area keeping the peace, ideally, and and by policy, not being aggressive with anyone, but certainly 
uh, protecting people from anybody who would be an aggressor and seek to cause violence on either side of the on either side of the issue there. So all of that is the context. Why does that matter? Well, let me also mention that it happened to be from April 12th to May 12th, it was Ramadan. So for those who don't know, Ramadan is this one month period of time on the Islamic calendar. It's going to fall on a different time on the Western or Gregorian calendar every year. And it's this period of time where from sunup to sundown, Muslims don't eat and they don't drink. No water, no food, anything. And devout Muslims are actually repenting and trying to grow closer to Allah and trying to do works of righteousness to demonstrate their allegiance to Allah and to appeal to his mercy. And after the sun goes down, every night it's a big feast. But 30 days of intense, really fasting and prayer in the, in the entire Muslim world, including the Muslim population in the land of Israel, on the Temple Mount, in the city of Jerusalem, and in the Palestinian territories. So this year, the, the period of Ramadan also coincided with this period, this, this kind of set-apart period of time of 49 or 50 days on the Jewish calendar between Passover and the Jewish Feast of Shavuot, which in the Christian world we understand to be very closely associated with Pentecost. Pentecost came up because we understand the Holy Spirit came during the Jewish Feast of Shavuot. Listen to our episode on that to get more details there. But so you have the convergence of a Jewish holy site, a Muslim holy site, the month of Ramadan, the period of uh, waiting upon the Lord, really, between Passover and uh, Shavuot on the Jewish calendar. All of this comes together. And a group of people, and let me just say before before I go on in the in the facts of the matter, Carly, the 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 peace deals, whatever it is, ceasefires, peace deals, accords, agreements in the Middle East always exist on a razor's edge. And under the lid of these things, if you will, like picture a pot on the stove, under the lid uh, that sort of contains everything is a slow boil of centuries and millennia old ethnic conflict religiously inspired conflict, more recently fueled by political conflict. And it's all at this slow boil. And the question is always, what's going to happen to raise the temperature just enough to blow the lid off and then everything happens again? And so what was that particular thing this go around? And as I understand the facts of the matter, I encourage you check out the news, check the facts for yourself, but don't just check one news channel because they're going to tell you only the facts that they want to support the conclusion they want you to draw. That's a story for another day. But as we understand the facts on Friday evening, and remember Shabbat, a holy day on the Jewish calendar, starts Friday at sunset every week. On Friday evening, May 7th, which was day 41 of this 50-day holy period of counting on the Jewish calendar, and very close to the end of Ramadan on the Muslim calendar, some Muslim men on the Temple Mount began out of anger, out of their resentment of Jewish people and the Jewish-controlled state of Israel, began to throw rocks from the surface of the Temple Mount, maybe 60 or 70 feet down below onto worshipers who had come to pray at the Wailing Wall. So they're lobbing stones, I can't tell you how big, but any rock thrown 60 or 70 feet in a projectile motion is hurtful if not deadly. And so these these protesters, kind of out of allegiance to Allah in this uh, zealous time of Ramadan, begin throwing rocks off the Temple Mount. And then those same protesters, when the Israeli police keeping security on the Temple Mount, began to pursue them to stop this behavior and arrest them, ran into the Dome of the Rock, a very, very holy site in Islam. So the Israeli police, by necessity, pursue those, those 
We'll call them criminals because throwing a rock off the Temple Mount is a crime. It's potentially deadly. Pursue those men, those criminals, into the Dome of the Rock to apprehend them. And news immediately erupts on international media and throughout the Arab and the Palestinian world that Israelis had dragged Muslim worshipers out of a holy site during Ramadan. So again, same events. Facts of the matter, Israeli police pursue criminals into a Muslim shrine to apprehend them. Headlines that come out on the news, Israel drags worshipers out of a site, out of a holy site in Islam during uh, a holy time on the, on the Muslim calendar. So you can see it right away where you can spin something how you want to get the result that you want. And of course, rage erupts throughout the Arab world, throughout the Palestinian world. And on May 10th, in response to this, kind of as out of vengeance and out of ire, Hamas, which controls the Palestinian Authority at present. Hamas is represented through Mahmoud Abbas, who is the leader of the Palestinian Authority, who has declared himself the leader of, if there is such to be such a thing as the future state of Palestine, which he's appealed to the UN to approve, he would be the leader. But Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian territories are under the control of a group called Hamas, which is really a radical, almost terrorist group, if you will. Research it if you don't believe me. Check out their reasons for existence and kind of their own mission statement. If you look at the logo for Hamas, by the way, it's two swords crisscrossed over a picture of the Dome of the Rock. So the idea is upholding the values of radical Islam by force and by violence if necessary. So inspired by Hamas, Hamas operatives and terrorists begin launching Iranian-funded, local Gaza-constructed rockets out of the Gaza Strip, this very small piece of land nestled between Egypt and the rest of the main part of Israel, out of Gaza Strip into the main part of Israel, and thus began what would become in 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 the last few weeks Thousands and thousands of rockets shot into Israel from the Gaza Strip. So at this point, I would imagine Israel would respond. Exactly. So the IDF, which you've heard that term maybe, but let me just spell it out so we're absolutely clear. The Israel Defense Force, meaning it defends the state of Israel and all the citizens of the state of Israel, Jewish, Arab, Christian, whatever, from its attackers. It's not the Israel Aggression Force. The IDF only takes action in response to aggression against it or the very real threat of harm or loss of life against the state or its people. Okay, so the Israel Defense Force in response began through airstrikes, through missiles, through some tank activity, very specifically targeting sites that through their own intelligence, they knew to be the locations of the leadership of, of this terrorist group, the Hamas terrorist group, or where the missiles were being shot from, where the rockets were being shot from. Unfortunately, those same buildings, perhaps by design, research it for yourself, also contained some women and some children and some innocent Palestinian people who were not directly involved in the terrorism. And actually, the Associated Press headquarters in Gaza Strip, Carly, and one of the Hamas headquarters were contained in the same building. So when Israel targeted an attack, there was damage done and some loss of life at the associated press level, which of course is going to come out in the international news. But the question is, why did Israel target those buildings? And the facts of the matter appear to be that those were the headquarters of terrorist cells or the launch points of missiles, rockets from Gaza into Israel. So of course, as the the rocket launching increases from Gaza to Israel, and 
as Israel responds in more and more severe measure to, to stop these attacks and protect the state of Israel, there's more and more loss of life. The media becomes more and more incensed. And of course, now we have, uh, as is so often the case, an internationally televised, internationally covered, full-blown Middle East peace conflict on the brink of what looks like war. Okay, so the Palestinian Authority is declaring war on Israel. What about the rest of the Middle East? Right. The, the PA is attacking Israel with these thousands of rockets. There's no end in sight. Neither party seems able to discuss an actual ceasefire because of the aggression from the other, as they would say. And so the question is, is the rest of the Middle East, which is all surrounding Israel, are, are Arab nations, Arab-dominated nations. Iran is, of course, Persian, not Arab, but immediately surrounding the borders of Israel are entirely Arab nations. Well, what's the response? Jordan and Israel have a peaceful relationship. There's bridges with the right permits. You can cross between, in the Jordan River Valley, you can cross between Israel and Jordan. But some radical Muslims from Jordan try to hop the fence into Israel with knives and other weapons running towards Jewish communities on the on the west side of the Jordan River to attack. Of course, they were app apprehended, but at least it, it, to some degree, the sentiment in Jordan among the radical Muslim community is Israel needs to be attacked. Well, up in Lebanon, we understand Hezbollah, if you remember that name, Hezbollah continues to antagonize Israel. They don't represent the entire Lebanese people. More and more in Lebanon, there's a curiosity about their neighbors to the south. And even because of Israel's warm response last year after that, after that giant explosion in the port of Beirut, if you recall, more and more Lebanese are wondering, could there be peace in the future with Israel? However, Hezbollah, the terrorist radical Muslim group also began attempting to shoot rockets from, is from Lebanon into northern Israel, up into the Galilee region, the Golan Heights, uh, some of the Jewish communities right on the border there. And Hezbollah said, if the Palestinian Authority wants to formally declare war, we will declare war simultaneously and we will go after Israel. So that's happening. Again, Egypt and Israel generally have a peaceful relationship. There's peace treaties. However, that relationship is strained because of the sentiment of the larger, more radical Muslim community in Egypt. And so all of this is heating up and heating up. But the, the point I want to make here is peace treaty or no peace treaty, when things get tough in a conflict involving Israel, people show their true cards. And it is not warm and fuzzy sentiment between Israel and its Arab neighbors when there's conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. So Israel, again, as, as conflict becomes more and more intense, often is left more and more alone in that region to defend itself. So it seems, you know, everyone is joining and I don't want to say declaring, but directing their aggression toward Israel. I think just a few days after this, a ceasefire occurs. So what what caused that? Or, you know, do they all come together and sing Kumbaya and a ceasefire occurs? Like, how do they go from multiple countries directing war at Israel to a ceasefire? A ceasefire is out of necessity, not out of desire, I'll say, because I, I, neither the Palestinian people nor the Israeli population are interested in any more unnecessary loss of life, I think, on either side. And that's I, I said it the way I said it, Carly, because we need to be careful not to vilify Arabs. I want to really speak to our Christian audience, talking about Israel's right, and I'll say unapologetically, and we have other episodes I'd encourage our audience to listen to on this, Israel's eternal right to the land of Israel as a homeland for Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem as the eternal God-given capital of Israel and of the Jewish people 
does not give us any right or entitlement to vilify the Arab people or the Persian people or the Palestinian people as a whole. So I'm talking specifically about terrorist groups that have tremendous government control that are informing the actions of these governments in these territories. I'm not talking about the vast majority of Palestinian people who may have some ill sentiment toward Israel, but who are not directly responsible for the actual bombings, and many of whom, if they could, would probably prefer to live in peace. Many, many, thousands and thousands of Palestinian people actually hold work permits and every day enter from the Palestinian territories into the main part of Israel and earn a salary there and are largely dependent upon the state of Israel for their family's welfare. So uh, I, I want to say that to say we're talking about the actions of governments and authorities here, not the actions of entire people groups. That being said, in addition to the the, the tremendous loss of life and potential for significantly more loss of life, which informed the ceasefire. Also, if you recall, there was huge international pressure. President Biden was making televised, highly recorded, highly publicized calls to Benjamin Netanyahu saying, we really, we support Israel's right to defend itself. We'll always stand with Israel, but Prime Minister Netanyahu, please call a ceasefire. Other countries are exerting their international pressure and their political influence on more Israel than the Palestinian Authority, but both parties stop this, have a ceasefire. And so around May 20th, finally, a ceasefire was declared, and almost immediately the rockets stopped from Gaza, and uh, Israel was able to uh, suspend its, its targeted attacks into Gaza to try to neutralize or eliminate these terrorist threats at their headquarters in the places where the rockets were being launched. However, as we're recording this on June 17th, just in the last 48 hours or so, some radical Islamic operatives in the Gaza Strip have, I mean, it almost looks like party city balloons, have started filling balloons with explosive gas and sending them over the border of Gaza into Jewish communities to cause explosions and fires, of which there have been several fires and explosions. And in response to that, the IDF has again initiated airstrikes on some of the terrorist headquarters who are actually calling for and orchestrating these attacks from Gaza on the larger on, on, on Israel. Does this mean the ceasefire is over? Well, both parties have violated the things they agreed to here. Again, Israel in response to a Gazan violation, but uh, Carly, it, it's anybody's guess at this point. It could be that the ceasefire is over and the rest of the summer isn't going to hold the peace that we had all hoped and prayed for, that it's going to hold more destruction, more inevitable loss of life, more terrorist attacks on the state of Israel, and more necessary IDF response, sadly to say, which also includes, despite their best efforts, the loss of Palestinian lives because of where the Palestinian Authority chooses to uh, headquarters itself. And unfortunately, you know, as we all would love peace in the Middle East, uh, Ezra, I'm sure you would agree that we're not really expecting peace to occur, you know, until Jesus really returns. Jesus is, as we say in Hebrew, the Sar Shalom, which means the Prince of Peace. And people say, what's the answer to peace in the Middle East? Carly, it's not something that came out through 20th century politics. The conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbors isn't something that started when the UN partition vote on Palestine actually formally voted to establish a Jewish homeland in the Middle East in 1947 that was established in 1948. It didn't even start when Jesus walked on earth. The conflict between the Jews and the Arabs goes back to a family feud 
where Isaac and Ishmael decide to go their separate ways, and thus begins a millennia-old family feud. But here's what I see in the scriptures. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it says Isaac, not Ishmael, have a right to the land. Israel is biblically the eternal homeland of the Jewish people, but God met Hagar, Hagar, in the wilderness, and in her desperation, talked about his love and his destiny for Ishmael and those who would come from Ishmael. God loves the Jews and he loves the Arabs in the sense of his love and his desire to see all men know him, come to know him through the Messiah. There is no difference because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that's important to remember here is we're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, which Psalm 122.6 exhorts us to do. And we're saying, what does that even mean, pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, it means pray that, Israel, that, that God would defend Jerusalem from her enemies on every side. But also we understand in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, Jerusalem is the place where Jesus is returning to establish his eternal kingdom and to rule and reign, where all men, Jew and Gentile alike, will behold his glory and submit to his lordship. And so as we're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to return. We're praying for God in his faithfulness, in his mercy, to reveal his love not only to the sons of Isaac and Jacob, namely the Jewish people, but also to the sons of Ishmael, to the Arab people, also to the Persians, historically the Assyrians. God loves it. We see it in Isaiah 19. If you don't believe me, check it out. God associates himself in his mercy with the Arabs, with the Assyrians, modern day really the Persians and other groups in that area, in Central Asia and with the Jews alike. And there's a day coming when we'll worship God together, but only he can do it through the revelation of himself, his glory, his character, and his love. And Carly, one of, to me, one of the biggest confirmations of the power of Jesus to transform a life is in the Middle East, where we see Jewish believers in Jesus and Arab Christians overcoming the millennia-old animosity and antagonism and all the bitterness that's attempted to be put on them through all the hate and all the offense and all the violence over all the generations and actually reaching across the aisle to one another and saying, I love you because God loves you and he's given me an inexplicable love for you in my heart. And so though we don't see the Prince of Peace manifesting peace on earth and goodwill towards men right now, as we know he promised in Isaiah to do, we do see him manifesting that peace in human hearts, Jewish hearts, Arab hearts. And what, what better thing to confirm the power and the testimony and the love and the gospel of Jesus, of Yeshua, than to see a Jew and an Arab embrace one another and forgive one another and be reconciled in the love of the Lord. So, uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the reconciliation of Jews and Arabs, pray for protection for Jewish people and protection for Palestinian people uh, from their enemies and also from oppressive terrorist cells and governments which don't have the interests of their people in mind. And pray that the Prince of Peace would return to rule and reign from the city where he's chosen to put his name forever. For those listening, if you're interested in more about what Ezra's talking about, the land of Israel, the people kind of who the players are in, in this conflict. We actually recorded a three-part series on Israel. It's episodes 14, 15, and 16. So if you haven't listened to those, go back and check those out, and you'll have a little more context for what we were talking about here. And I just encourage our audience to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, like Ezra was just talking about, and, and also for, for all involved. Imagine if everyone 
received the good news and accepted Jesus. What an amazing testimony that would be. And also pray for the innocent people in this. You know, often people are kind of stereotyping, well, this is all Muslims. No, we're talking about extremists here. We're not talking about the Muslim who's who's living there and going about their business. No, pray for all involved. There's there's just so much complexity and there it just needs to be covered with so much prayer. Uh, so that's our encouragement. I hope there was some clarity brought to the conflict and what's happening and not just kind of the news you may be hearing, all sorts of different articles you're reading and, and maybe things that conflict, but just the facts and what's happening and just an encouragement to prayer. So I hope that's helpful to you. Thanks for listening this week. I know this is a little different than uh, some of our, our other content, but we hope it brings you some good knowledge and information. As we mentioned at the top of this podcast, we want to give you the opportunity to win a free bag of our Lost Tribes coffee. You can do that by entering our monthly coffee giveaway by texting JG to 474747. You can also enter at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org, which has other information about how to support Jewish communities around the world. If you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. We love reading your feedback. You can also follow us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. Leave any questions or topics there that you want us to discuss on a future podcast. And be sure to join us next week for another episode. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.